Lord, we thank you in looking back. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your tender, meticulous care. We thank you, Lord, that you have surveyed our year and have been there from the beginning to the end of it. And now, Lord, we look toward our future and the year ahead. In 2008, we commit it to you and we pray that our lives would grow, that we would not remain at the same place we're at today, but we would move, as, as Paul said, from glory to glory in the image of Christ. Lord, we continue our worship by paying heed to what your word says as we prepare our hearts to take these elements that are the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen. It was a cold December in 1914 when Thomas Edison's laboratory in New Jersey was burned to the ground, completely destroyed. The very next day, that 67-year-old inventor was walking through the ruins with all of his projects destroyed. And you'd think that he would be hopeless. And quite the opposite was the truth. He walked through his rubble and he turned to somebody and said, You know, there's great value in disaster. For all of our mistakes are burned up. And thank God we can start anew. That's a great way to look at things. All of our mistakes have been burned up. Well, our year is about burned up. Our 365 days, 5 hours, 49 minutes, and 12 seconds that comprise a unit of a year has just about gone out, just about extinguished. And we have a whole new year ahead of us. And you have every reason to face the coming year with great confidence. Although most people don't, I came across a study that revealed that most adults look at their future with doubt and fear. In fact, in this survey, only 50% of adults that they surveyed are looking optimistically at the future. Only about 50%. Whereas a couple of years ago, it was about 70%. Fewer people are looking confidently at the future. Now, the only way to have hope for what's ahead, to have confidence in the future, it's more than making a New Year's resolution. I know that that's done this time of the year. I was driving down Asuna, in fact, last night, and there was a billboard that had a Diet Coke on it. And it said, a New Year's resolution with taste. In other words, go on a diet, buddy. That's what the statement was all about. And this is the time of the year where people make resolutions. That is an inward commitment to change. But I submit to you that we need a lot more than a resolution or two or three. What we need is a New Year's revolution. And a revolution denotes a radical change. It denotes overturning the status quo, something that can only be done by the Spirit of God. There was a man who went to his doctor. He was losing his memory, and the doctor looked at him and said, Well, we can't help your memory unless we impair your eyesight, so you have to make a choice. Do you want to see or do you want to remember? And the guy thought about it, and he said, Well, doctor, I think I'd rather see than remember. I'd rather see where I'm going 
than to remember where I've been. Well, where are you going in the next 12 months? Well, what I'd like you to do with me is look at a passage of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It really is the end of his book. It's one of Paul's first letters ever written. And in this section of chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, Paul gives a several summary statements. They're all commandments. They're all in the imperative uh, mode. He's, he's summing up, really, Christian life and Christian values by a list of commands. And I thought this is a good way to approach the new year. This is where the revolution can begin. Uh, all of these areas talk about our relationship to people, to God, and to the world. And so let's look at these and then we'll apply them. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Notice how short and concise and almost like a staccato list of commands are given. These are revolutionary. If we could just do these, wow. So I've outlined it this way. There's a revolution needed in our walk, our spiritual walk. There's a revolution needed in our worship toward God. And then there's a revolution needed in our witness toward the world. Let's begin in the first one. A revolution in our walk. You know, this year our spiritual walk really could change. And one of the things we must never do as Christians is get stale and stagnant and feel like we've arrived, man. We've made it. I've got to this plateau. I don't need to go any further. That would be our death. Martin DeHaan put it this way. Self-satisfaction is the death of progress. The most boring people I ever meet are the ones telling me what they've done when they ought to do more. So let the revolution begin And let it begin in how we treat other people. And let's begin in the church. Now, beginning in verse 14, there's a short list of three very different kinds of people. And uh, all of them will develop your spiritual walk. Look at the first one. The unruly, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Now all of these people in this short list are all in the body of Christ. The word unruly, well, this describes what I'll call the the church's problem child. The defiant Christian. The Christian with an attitude. The word originally spoke about soldiers who march in line and one of them decides to step out of line, to get out of rank, to go his own direction. And what do you do with problem people like that? Well, you could leave them alone, but that's not mature. There's no revolution in that. Or you could get involved. 
And when you see somebody who is unruly, you warn them, you're out of line. You need to get back in line. My parents were faithful at warning their four boys to do that. And one thing I do admire about my parents in looking back is they always made promises. They never made threats. They never threatened me. If you do that again, then we'll do this. That's a threat. A promise is when you follow through with a consequence. And I see some parents that all they do is say that over and over again. If you do that again, we'll do this. If you do that again, and then their voice raises each time. And the kid knows after three or four episodes of that, it's only when mom's voice reaches 110 decibels that I really need to worry. My parents didn't do that. They simply warned me when I was unruly. And then if I was unruly, they kept their promise. They were faithful to follow through with the consequence. Well, there is a biblical way to confront and to correct. And if we would just as a body of Christ, as people in relationship with one another, begin with Matthew 18, if somebody is unruly, and follow through those principles, that would be revolutionary. But that's not the only type of person mentioned. There is the faint-hearted. Notice in the very next breath, Paul says, comfort the faint-hearted. Warn the unruly, but comfort the faint-hearted. The word means small-souled. This is the Christian who gets discouraged easily, who wants to quit, who always sees the dark side of things. You know the type. I think of Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh. Remember Eeyore? He was that. He always saw the dark side. Hello, thanks for noticing. Cheer up. Things will get worse. There's, there's people in the church like that, and they do not need rebuking. They need encouraging. They need comforting. Um, they need to be helped along. It would be revolutionary if we, as believers, would become mature enough to know how to counsel and handle different kinds of people. Not the same approach to all people, but different ways of approaching different people with different situations. Somebody once noted that for every negative comment that a person hears, they need to hear five or six positive ones to overcome the discouragement by that one negative comment. Then it says, uphold the weak. So you've got the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And the weak are... Those who have fallen or who have a propensity to fall, they can't stand up on their own. They need somebody holding them up for a period of time. They can't make it alone. And our approach to them shouldn't be, come on, grow up, you're a Christian. But to get alongside of them and say, you can walk, I'm right here, let's do it together. And then he sums it all up by saying, be patient with everyone. That's tough. Be patient with all. Long-hearted would be a better translation. Be long-hearted. Macrothumeo is the Greek word. Macro, large, long. Thumos, think of thermos or heat. It's, it's, it's where you won't explode right away. You let it simmer for a long time. Macrothumeo. I love the King James Version, long-suffering. 
long-suffering. That's being patient to all. Um, Look at it this way. It's letting your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. You know what I'm talking about. You get around some people and they rile you up and you get so emotionally upset you feel like just... Let the motor idle. Don't strip the gears. Just let it idle a while. Here's a revolutionary thought. Every Christian matures at a different rate. In any group of believers, you're going to have the unruly, the faint-hearted, and the weak. We need to be patient with all of them. Now, I'm going to ask you to skip down from those verses all the way down to verse 21, because I think we have a balance here. Not only should there be discretion with everyone, but there should be discernment in everything. Test all things and hold fast what is good. So let me sum up that balance. Be loving, be patient, but don't be stupid. What the church needs is smart love, discerning patience. Not just taking everything that is said or done because it's done or said by a Christian as right or truth, but being very careful with it, being very discerning. Love the body of Christ enough to scrutinize everything according to the plumb line of one standard, and that is the Word of God. And this might be a good time of the year to commit to the Bible from 30,000 feet again on Wednesday nights. Let us give you the balance of what the Bible says about the mind of God as we go through the Scriptures. Let us help you get equipped. Discerning love. Mature love. I'm going to read to you a passage of Scripture out of 1 John chapter 4, the first verse. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. I'll paraphrase that. Don't believe everything you hear. Compare it with Scripture. You hear it on the radio, you read it in a Christian book or on Christian television or from a Christian pulpit. Just because it's spoken by someone from those arenas doesn't necessarily mean it's right. Love the body of Christ enough to scrutinize. You know, we teach our kids that. We teach our kids they're not to eat everything they find. If a stranger gives them candy, they're not to eat that candy. They're not to take it from a stranger. Oh, but it tastes so good. Now, but don't swallow everything given to you. I'll never forget when my son was a toddler and he found a cockroach and he ate it. And we had to quickly fortify that truth. You don't eat everything you see. You have to be discerning. And so do Christians when it comes to spiritual things. So be loving, be patient, be long-suffering, but be smart. There should also be a revolution in our worship. Not only in our spiritual walk, but in our worship. Paul addresses that. Verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. All of these little commands, once again, are in the category of our relationship toward God, our worship. 
The first one is joyful praise. Rejoice always. Now, what does that mean? You and I are told to rejoice always. Does that mean we're to paste on a fake smile wherever we go and go, Hi, God bless you. How are you doing? No, don't do that, whatever you do. It doesn't mean that you're always to smile and be happy. The idea is in the context of praise and worship. It's very similar to a a command that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. This is what he said. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's the idea here. In other words, it means to have praise in our hearts at all times toward God. Think about that. When your life is going great and everything's going your way and all of your plans are coming to fruition, there ought to be praise in your heart toward God. When everything doesn't happen that way and seems to fall through the cracks and your life isn't what you planned and bad things happen, there is still praise in your heart toward God. When you're in the in-between times, the boring times, the day-in, day-out activities, there's still praise in your heart toward God. That would be revolutionary to rejoice always. Let me encourage you, even challenge you, that this year... Your praise to God is going to be filled with rejoicing. Your expression of praise is going to be exuberant, lively. Rejoice always. Rejoice in the Lord. Do you love Him? Tell Him. Somebody said, God isn't too crazy about secret admirers. (laughs) Tell Him. Show it. Worship Him. Sing to the Lord with a rejoicing kind of a song. Charles Spurgeon said, Our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful people is in keeping with His nature. Think about it this way. Evangelism is temporary. Christian service is temporary. Worship is eternal. You see... When you die and you're in heaven, you're not going to be telling anybody about how to get saved. Your evangelism ends the day you pass from time into eternity. Your Christian involvement and volunteer spirit and service, that ends as soon as you're in heaven. This kind of church service to one another. But your worship that begins here, this is just the warm-up. We're we're practicing, you might say, tuning up for eternity. Your worship has an eternal characteristic to it. Rejoice always. Makes sense. Verse 17 continues that thought of worship. Pray without ceasing. Now this, you're thinking, this could be a problem. How, how, How can I do that? Pray without ceasing? Does that mean when I go to the grocery store, somebody calls me? Just a minute. I can't talk to you right now. I'm praying. No, that's not the idea. It's not like you're muttering a mantra over and over again. The idea of pray without ceasing doesn't mean constantly occurring, but rather constantly recurring. Picture you got the phone and it's always off the receiver. You never hang it up. You always have God and His ear available as you go through the day at every season 
in every situation. It's just a matter of habit for you to talk to God about it. So that you don't confine prayer to an episode. Oh, it's Sunday. It's the day I pray. Some people's prayer life is saying amen to the preacher's prayer. Preacher says something and they're thinking, what he said, amen. That's it. Or it's confined to mealtimes, you know, praise the Lord and pass the mashed potatoes. Or bedtime, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my husband won't be a creep. (laughs) Well, that's how it goes for some folks. But I think you would admit that probably every person in this room could use a revolution in his or her prayer life. I know I could. That's always an area that I know needs tweaking. I love that hymn that says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We've got to sing that more often, I can see. Verse 18. Not only joyful praise, not only habitual prayer, but grateful perspective. Verse 18, in everything, give thanks. Boy, I'm glad it doesn't say for everything, give thanks. That wouldn't be appropriate. I don't thank God for war. I don't thank God for murder. I don't thank God for things that happen. But in the midst of everything, now that's possible. I can be thankful. And notice it says, this is God's will for you. So many people go, I want to know God's will for my life. Well, I don't know all of God's will, but I can tell you this, wherever you're at, be thankful. That's God's will in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. Now, if we were this way, that would be revolutionary, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be revolutionary if instead of griping all year long and having one day called Thanksgiving, we reversed it? What if we thank God every day and saved up all of our gripes for one day, got it all out of our system, it's over with, we go back to thankfulness every day? It really doesn't make sense to pray without ceasing and to always rejoice and then gripe at the same time. Part of our worship must be thanksgiving. You know, if you think about the children of Israel as they marched through the desert for 40 years, they had more to be thankful for than anybody on the face of the earth at that time period, didn't they? They were delivered from slavery. They were provided for miraculously in the desert. They were given a new land for 40 years. What did they do during those 40 years? Gripe, moan, groan, complain over and over and over again. And here's the real kicker. At the same time, they were setting up a worship system bringing sacrifices to the tabernacle, God telling them what to do when, that whole tabernacle system. All the time they're griping. That's inconsistent. James said, My brothers, how can you with your tongue give praises to God and curse men? These things ought not to be so. Can fresh water and bitter water come out of the same spring? No, our consistency should be that of thanking God. There's a couple parts of Mexico where there's an interesting feature. Hot springs next to cold springs. So you have a a source of hot water coming out of the ground and cold water. It's very convenient. The locals use it. And what they'll do is they'll wash their clothes in the hot springs and then rinse them in the cold water. It's really cool. 
Well, there was a visitor down in Mexico, was with a guide, and he noticed one of these places. And the guy thought, huh. He said to the guide, I bet these people are grateful to God that he gives them hot and cold water for free at the same place. And the guide smiled and he said, No, senor, there is much grumbling that God provides no soap. (laughs) That's human nature. But it doesn't have to be that way this next year. It doesn't have to be that way. Look down at verse 19 and 20. Also part of our worship is making progress in the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. The word quench means to put a fire out. Don't put the fire of the Spirit out, or put it this way. Don't throw a wet blanket on something the Holy Spirit is trying to ignite. That's the idea. Some person observed that Christianity in America is 3,000 miles wide and one half an inch thick. That is, it's widespread, it's everywhere, but really shallow. We could grow in the Spirit. It's interesting that Paul includes this for these believers. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't despise prophecy. In other words... You could grow in the area of spiritual gifts. It's sad that when you mention spiritual gifts to some people, they white-knuckle their Bibles. It's like, oh no. They're just so not open to that because of all of the extremes that they have seen. But he says, don't quench the Spirit. Some people are so afraid to be open to some new experience that could come to them from God. Folks, hear me carefully. You never have to be afraid of anything that God wants to give you if it's legitimately from God. If it's a legitimate, biblical, Holy Spirit experience, you never have to be afraid of that. But there does need to be a balance. So that's why, again, that follow-up verse, verse 21, test all things and hold fast to what is good. So... Don't quench the Spirit, but don't attribute everything to the Holy Spirit. Balance. The first Sunday morning service we ever had in Albuquerque at a local theater, someone came up to me and put out his hand and said, Great to be here, Pastor, and enjoy the service, but I'll never be coming back. I said, Well, okay, great to have you. Tell me why you're not going to come back. And he said, Because I can see that you don't believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I said, well, what about the gift of teaching? Did you see that today? He goes, yeah. What what about the gift of helps? Did you see all those people helping? Oh, yeah. What about the gift of exhortation? You heard the worship team? Well, yeah, but you know what I mean, he said. You know, where are the tongues and the prophecy and the interpretation, etc.? He says, you're not charismatic. So I thanked him, and he went his way. The very next week after a service, somebody came up. Thank you for the service, Pastor. I'll not be coming back. So I'm like, okay, and I'm getting used to this by now. So tell me why you're not coming back. He said, because you're too charismatic. I thought, really? 
Now, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, I saw during the worship service some people standing up with their hands raised. We just don't do that where I come from. So after that second week, I sort of turned to the Lord and said, yes, we're right in the middle, right where we need to be. Not on that extreme and not at that extreme, just right in that balance. Being open, but not nuts. Well, it would be revolutionary if our walk and our worship would follow this outline. There's a a final part, and that's verse 22. And we'll look at that before we take the Lord's Supper together. And that is a revolution in our witness. Verse 22. Abstain from every form of evil. Now that verse has to do with our witness to the world because the word form is the Greek word idos, which means outward form or appearance. That's why the King James Version says, avoid every appearance of evil. This is how we reflect the life of Christ to those who are watching us who are unbelievers in the world. We are to avoid every appearance of evil. You know, sometimes you can't tell the difference between God's kids and the devil's kids in their value system, in their activity, in what they say, in what they watch, in what they do. And if there is no difference, if there is no life of holiness that we live in and enjoy, then the witness we are giving to the world is this witness. We are saying to the world, Jesus Christ makes no difference in a person's life than if you didn't have them. I'm the same person, with or without Christ. But if we avoid every form or appearance of evil, if we decide I'm going to live for Christ singularly in this world, you know what? You're going to be very attractive to people. A a Christian who really lives what he or she believes in daily life, it's... It's like bugs that are attracted to lights at night. They'll swarm around you. People will just sort of want to find what makes you tick because they see reality and authenticity. Well, I'd sum all that we read up by saying we're talking here about a revolution of love, a revolution of love, loving the body of Christ enough to make a a difference with the unruly, um, the weak, uh, the faint-hearted, knowing how to counsel and approach them differently because they're at different stages of their life. That's love. It'd be a revolution of love in our worship. We love God enough to always rejoice in Him, to always be thankful in every situation, and to keep that receiver always ready to be used in prayer. To be open to what the Holy Spirit would do in growing us up into new experiences in the Spirit. And then finally, to love the world enough to avoid every appearance of evil. I don't know how long you'll live. Truth is, some of us might be in heaven by year's end. You know what I've discovered? And I believe this. The big issue isn't a long life, but a full life, a good life. Jim Elliott, who died at a relatively young age, wrote in his journal in 1948 before he was murdered by the Alka Indians. He said, Lord, I pray not for a long life, but for a full life. 
like yours, Lord Jesus. Some people live a long time, and I know longevity is a big deal these days. You know, you can live longer. I don't want to just live longer. I want to live better. And this is a good place to start. I suggest a revolution this year in our walk, in our worship, and in our witness. As I pray, I'm going to ask the communion board to come, and we're going to pass out these elements in the next few minutes and take them together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your words to us. So practical are these lasting lessons, the summary that Paul gives in this little book in the New Testament. I do pray, Lord, that more than just a few inward commitments called resolutions, that there would be a a radical upsetting and change of the status quo, a revolution in our lives with people, with you, and toward the world. Lord, these can't be done apart from a work of the Spirit, and we pray that they would be done by your Holy Spirit. And as we take these these elements that remind us of Jesus' shed blood and broken body, we're reminded that we couldn't even have standing before you on our own. We can't do anything without you. We need an act of selfless love and grace for us to even be Christians, let alone live the Christian life. So we do this in your honor and remembrance of you, and at the same time asking for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.